Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining me on the From Nowhere to Somewhere podcast. My name is Luke Staten. The reason behind this creation is to share words of wisdom, hope and optimism through conversation that can show us just what's possible in life. I've been truly inspired by the words I have not only listened to, but deeply heard from the people I've shared conversations with. I hope you enjoy hearing how everyday people overcome trials and tribulations and when faced with adversity, find a way to use this to their advantage. Common theme throughout, from all the different guests on the series, from wherever they are from, whatever beginning, whatever background, is they all have a desire for more from life. They all want to live a life of fulfillment. I hope you enjoy listening as much as I do creating. Thank you for joining me. So first of all, Chris, thank you so much for joining us. It's really a privilege to have you on. And I'm just going to share a bit of context to the group so everybody can kind of understand the reason that I've brought you on here. So I, I met Chris about kind of 12, probably 12 months ago, something like that. And I did a session for an organization called Inco. And it was around empowering people to become the best they can be and keeping their team together through lockdown because everybody was having to work from home just prior to lockdown. And um, I got a phone call from Chris. He says, hi, Luke, I'm Chris. He said, uh, I just wanted to reach out to you and just say how much I enjoyed the session that you delivered. And I've just got a few questions that I'd like to ask you. So he starts to ask me a few questions. And I said, OK, would you tell me a little bit about yourself? And he goes on to tell me that the company that I delivered the session for was Chris's company. And he's actually sold it to the guys that own it now. And Chris was actually there as a participant wanting to join in the session of which I was delivering. So I'm starting to think, okay, this guy, he sold his company to the guys that got me in to do the session. And he's there as a participant just because he wants to be there and listen and learn. Um, And Chris kept asking me questions. And I didn't get a chance to ask him anything after that because he said, Luke, what else do you do? How much more could you do to help? And he's asking me all these questions. And I came off the call thinking, why is that guy asking me? This guy's in his early 30s. He doesn't ever have to work again. And he's asking me questions. I need to ask him questions. And I remember leaving the phone and thinking, there's something that I recognize here in people that do well in all different aspects of life. And I'm not talking about just finances here. I'm talking about relationships, friendships, sport, business, that they ask lots of questions and they're always willing to learn. So as soon as I put that phone down, Chris, coming back to you now, as soon as I put that phone down, I thought to myself, this guy's got something because not only has he been successful within his business, he's asking questions about what else, what more, how could I be more of this? How could I do that? Have you always been that kind of uh, guy, Chris, that asked questions in terms of things that you may not know, but you will want to find the answers? Just before you answer that, Chris, let's give a big round of applause, guys. I got excited. I missed that bit out. Let's give a big welcome, big round of applause. Have you always been that kind of individual, Chris, from when you can remember as a youngster that you would always ask questions? Um, I think so. I think I always say the best advice I ever get now is from my, my nine-year-old and my 11-year-old. Uh, and I think you can learn from absolutely any, everyone, I think. Um, but yeah, I think with businessmen, they're not always the cleverest men, but the <laughs> cleverest men, or women, should I say, cleverest people, should I say. Um, so everyone in my business was better than me at doing a certain task. So that's what I re- used to reach out to, to those, to employ those. So, and I find that fascinating that you feel that you can learn from your children, because I've got children a similar age. And if I asked you, Chris, um, what's something that you've learned about yourself through lockdown, what would it be? Because obviously you've gone from having a business, being relentless 24-7, yeah. to selling the company in 2020, to then going into lockdown. Now, all of a sudden, dad who's always grafting and flying all over the world is now at home every day. How have you found that? What have you learned about yourself? I think, I think I've learned that there's not a lot that you need to be happy. You need very little. Uh, and I think you can, get, you can get your head down bogged in life itself uh, and sleepwalk through life. Um, search for things that you've already got. And I think what lockdown has proved to us as a family is you don't need very, very little, really. Um, I know it's easy for me to say when work isn't a problem, but the stuff that we do as a family, it, it, it doesn't cost that much. Um, I think that's what we've learned as a family. So I'm going to rewind the clock, Chris, and I'm, I know you'll be able to remember this because you're not, you're not too old now. So I'm going to take you back to the 16-year-old apprentice that turns up 
for work, sorry, before the apprenticeship, 16 year old kid that turns up for work experience. Can you remember that day when you rocked up for work experience and then your life started to really open up? Well, at 16, I, I knew everything. I knew absolutely everything and nobody could tell me otherwise. Um, but I think what put me forward, well, I thought I, thought I knew everything, obviously. Um, but I think I was around um, adults, quite young, thrown into a building site at such a young age. Um, you had to mature quite quickly. Um, but I, I got done with all the old tricks, you know, go for a long wait, um, you know, the wheelbarrow licence. I went through all of that as adults. But I think being with grown-ups at a young age, I think sort of progressed my, progressed my career, I think, at an early age. And, and so when you went for the work experience at 16, Chris, is that the company that you then went to do an apprenticeship with? Yes, it was, yeah. yeah. So when me and you spoke, you talked about the work experience and it opening your eyes to actually, I could maybe do something with this because academically you wasn't actually thriving or, you know, you wasn't doing as well as you would have liked to do. What do you think? What do you think clicked in your mind when you went on that work experience and then you decided to go for an apprenticeship with that company? And to the point of what you told me that the business owners were so impressed with you, and it was like, we want you. What do you think you showed in that short period of time? I think it was just a willing to learn, I think. Uh, and I think that goes in any business now. If you do slightly more than what you're expected to do, you're, you'll always go really far. Um, you can always get caught in the corporate ladder where you would do lots of stuff and you don't get appreciated. So obviously there's different avenues you can look at that, uh, at that point. But I think generally, if you always do that little bit extra than what you expected to, you're always, you're always going to progress, always. Amazing. So when, can you remember when you was a little kid, what was a dream for you? Were you a footballer, a cricketer, or what was it? No, I, I think I spoke about this earlier. I wanted, to, I wanted to be in the Marines when I was, when I was younger. Uh, and then I did all well. I, I did the first meeting. And then that was at that point when I left school and I just started the work experience. Um, and then my first paycheck come, my first wage come. And I, I think it was about £700. £724 it was for a month. Bear in mind, I was getting up at the bus journey to Sorrit was two hours there, two and a half hours there and two and a half hours back. Um, four down, so that's five days a week. Uh, I was getting £700 for the month. Um, and that was after that first, after that first uh, paycheck come. Oh, I squashed the Marines. I still regret it slightly. Um, and yeah, and then I thought, no, I, I want my own money because I was living on like £10 a week pocket money from my mum and dad. From, from going from that to getting, to getting 700 quid, it was like, wow, I just spent it all in the first sort of three hours of, of getting it. Uh, and that was it then. I just, I thought, no, this is, uh, I just want to work more now. What did you spend it on? Can you remember? <laughs> it, was a, it was a PS2. Um, I think it was a PlayStation 2 or PlayStation 3, whatever it was at that time, probably a PS1, uh, and all the controllers, a couple of games. I think that come to about 600 quid. Um, and I still had £100 spare for the rest of the month. So I was, I was well in. I was easy. <laughs> so it was that kind of your first taste of having a little bit of money to yourself and to buy things, and that gave you an appetite then to do more work rather than go off to the Marines? Yeah, it was definitely. Yeah, definitely. Just having that freedom. It wasn't just about solely about the money at that time. But although when you're 16, it, it, it was a big part of having money. Um, but it just gave you that freedom then to do to do what you wanted to do as a 16-year-old. And at what point, Chris, did you start to kind of have that mindset? Because we haven't told people this yet, but we'll get to that a little bit later on, where you actually end up selling the company that you started your apprenticeship with all those years ago. Um, at what point did you start to think to yourself, do you know what, maybe one day I could own a company, maybe one day I could be the business owner rather than working within it? Can you remember when you start to think like that, at what age? Um, I can't remember that, but I remember at a young age, always thinking that there was never a dead-end job for anyone. And even when I had Inco, um, I'd look at the cleaner and thought if, if he or she did a really good job at Inco, then I'd ask them to clean our sites. And then if they did really well at the sites, then I'd ask them to clean multiple sites. And that's how I saw everyone in any industry. And any job you look at now, no matter how, how frowned upon people may look at it, there's always, some, there's always a business behind it, uh, no matter what you do. And I just saw, I saw the bigger picture of, of um, sort of the employee, if you like. So, I can't so you, finish, that was. you finish your apprenticeship, Chris. What happens next? So they offered me the job. Um, that was one day a week college. Um, so they offered me the job. Then I, all, all I did then is I worked up a good client base, just being um, good with people, uh, 
promising, delivering what I promised. Um, clients like me at a young age. It was quite hard at first because being being very young, uh, 17, 18, in a managerial position on site with ground uh, ground blokes was hard because you had to have a certain tact to... Um, I, I can go into site and tell a, a, a bricklayer who's been laying bricks for 40 years how to lay bricks. So I had, to, I had to learn very quickly how can I get him to do what I want to do um, the right way. Uh, and that was that was quite good schooling. So I ended up you know, being able to converse with a lot of range of people on sites in different positions. Um, and it just progressed from there then, um, up until my mid-20s. I just did that. And I, I just concentrated on each job as it come. I never had any big, massive, wild dreams then. I just concentrated on the job I was to do and do it and do it well. And, and just to explain to the guys what the company was at that point, Chris. The company was just a shop-fitting company. So we used to, uh, any spa store you've been in, we, we used to do all the suspended ceilings um, and stuff in that up and down the country. Um, now, before the supermarkets boom, spa stores was, was there was one in at least one in every single town. So I was racing around the country, just um, shop fitting those out. So, um, yeah, uh, but my, my mentor, I ended up buying out um, five, six years ago. Um, I think he, he did it right by putting me on site first. So I got that experience. So when I went on to the managerial, I actually knew how to talk to the lads while being on site. And at what point did you start to think about? Kind of, so you're working within the business at the time. You're on site. You're managing people, and you start. You, you've obviously got this mentality to do well at whatever you do. You can clearly yeah. see that. At what point did you start to think? Do you know what? I want to buy out my mentor that's helped me get to this point. At what point did you start to think that way? At first, at first the goal was when I was 18. I wanted an Audi TT at the age of 25, and that was my goal then. I want to get to 25. I want to buy an Audi TT. Um, by the time I got to the mid, early 20s, I didn't want an Audi TT. I wanted something else. Um, but my mentor, um, or the, the guy who, who had the business, he always said to me, look, I'm not going to be doing this forever. And he, he kept planting those seeds. Um, and so I always knew in the back of my mind, if I carry on doing it, then good things will come. And, and, that's, and that's how it progressed, basically. So you think that he had in his mind that he would like you to take on the reins from him at some point? He just kept planting that seed yes. in your mind? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And obviously, if, if I was now good, he would, he would have, no doubt, he would have sacked me. Um, but obviously, I showed, I showed what potential I had. Uh, and yeah, and that was exactly the same I did with the, with the lads who were recently. So you're working within the company, your mentor owns it, and he's planting these seeds, and you're starting to think, the more that I impress, the more opportunity I may have within here to maybe take over the reins from him one day and own it. And then... Um, Forgive me if I'm wrong. Was it 27 years of age that you then purchased the company off your mentor? Is that right? Yeah, it was about the age of 27. Oh, just going back to the youth, actually, while I touch on, it, it was really difficult at that time because um, because I was on such a, a sort of an apprentice wage. When all my mates have left school and they've gone on to do a trade, they was getting double of what I was getting. And that was really hard to stick with. And at one point, I nearly, I nearly quit to go plastering um, because of... My wage was, was so low for an apprenticeship, but the other guys, my mates went out of school, was earning £100 a day. Um, so at that point, I, I just had to, I knew I had to keep going at what I was doing, and obviously it's paid dividends now. Um, but yeah, it was about, yeah, I, was, I think I was 27 when I, when I ended up buying him out, uh, buying the company, I think. And just at that point there, Chris, of what you said, that <clears> what do you think it was? What do you think it was that your friends was earning that kind of money, so you was then thinking of shifting? What was going off in your mind then? I think it's when, I think at the time, naively, when you're with a group of friends and they're all saying, oh, I earn this much and I earn that much. And then you sort of, you sort of care and you say, well, I only get this. And, and then it's like, oh, you know, that's no good, you know, and it's peer pressure. Basically, peer, at that age, it's peer pressure. And that, that is, that's, a, that's tough at that age. Obviously now, you, you know, it, it seems silly, but at that age, when you're 16, 17, and all your mates are earning that much money and they're buying all the, the stuff that you want to buy and, and stuff like, and uh, yeah, that, that, was, that was hard to stick to. But I think the biggest thing I've, I've had um, in my life, I've had a, I can, I can, I can see decades ahead um, and I plan, uh, you know, uh, plan not for the next job, I plan for the next five, 10, 20 years as, as we spoke before. So what stopped you leaving and going to be a plasterer then when you were getting this peer pressure? Something, just share with the group because something you told me about the people that you said around earning 35 grand to 25 grand. I love this. And this is so true for, I think we get lost in this comparison of 
what they've got, what I haven't got, instead of what yeah. I have got. We yeah. look at what we haven't got. Just tell the guys about it. I thought it was brilliant. Yeah, there was, there was a survey done and um, a group of people was asked um, if you could have two choices. You could either be on £30,000, say, and then all your friends and family could be on £35,000 or you could be on £25,000 but all your family, all your friends and family would be on £20,000 and a high proportion of the people took the lower wage for themselves but meaning that the friends and family was on a lower, more lower wage than them. And that just shows you that a lot of people don't look, they look externally thinking, well, I wanted to be doing the best out of everyone. I can't handle that if someone's doing more or earning more. And that just shows the human psychology of, of how it can get wrapped up in, in, in your own head. Um, I thought that was interesting. I think it is very interesting. I think people do it without even knowing it about that. What, what haven't I got rather than what I've got on comparison? Um, I think... Often you hear the quote, comparison is the thief of joy. And there's always going to be somebody doing better than you at some something in some walk of life, isn't there? Yeah. Yeah, so definitely. you get to 27. Tell yeah. us about how you um, got to the point of buying the organisation. I know you bought it for, was it 1.2 million at the 1. age of 27? First of all, how did you get 1.2 million pounds at the age of 27? Uh, I, I did well. The, the money was in the business. That so was like a business-funded um, deal, but it was it was done on trust. So he trusted me impeccably with the business to then take it. To, well, keep doing what we was doing and then pay him off in, over the next sort of five years, which probably made it a bit more stressful for me because if I owed it a bank, I haven't you know as I've got loyalty to the bank, I haven't got as much loyalty to the bank that I have a family friend. So. Um, that, that was tough in the first few years, especially in the industry that we had. We had, you know, uh, not much work or uh, you never had jobs booked in for, you know, on in the next three months. So you're always wondering when your next job is. But you, you can get bogged down in the figures and you, you can analysis paralysis. You can look at the figures and, and, and you can scare yourself. Um, I mean, I bought the business for £1.2 million. I never even read all the solicitor documents. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, I, I wouldn't advise that if I was advising someone else, but I just simply knew what I had to do and when I had to do it, and then the, the head was on the uh, on the task then. Um, at what point, kind of, at what stage was the, was the business then in terms of kind of turnover and how many people you had within the business at that point? I think we had um, two of the employees was my mentor and his wife. So that left another two, I think we had three employees. Uh, we had a lot of subcontractors on site. Um, we was turning over about four million pound at the time, earning about four hundred thousand pound profit. Um, okay. Yeah. And what was your kind of? What was the feeling that once you owned it and you now? I mean, I'm thinking back to when I was twenty seven, and you think all of a sudden you've just purchased a business with, with loyalty through a friend. So now I owe my mate one point two million. Yes. So you're right. There's a lot more pressure there because he's never going away. The banks might give you a bit of a break if you need it, but he's your mate. You owe it to him because he's your mentor. So you've got a lot of emotional leverage on yourself there to yeah. make it work. Can you remember how you felt and thought at that period of time? Uh, I can, yeah. I think, like I say, you, you could go on. Bear in mind, you know, the business deal was on top of a stressful job anyway because we was looking after clients, running sites, so that was just on top. But I think because I kept so busy on site and building the team, I knew what, you know, forget about the, the 1.2 million and, and the solicitor's letters and the dates and the payments and that. I just knew that if I if I hand over good jobs and keep the clients happy, that'll take care of the that'll take care of the loan. Um, and that was it really. My mind was on the, the job didn't change. The job didn't the job didn't have to change. I just had to keep doing what I was doing and, and it would pay off. So there's many people on here that have their own business or work quite um, senior within a business or maybe got their own ideas of creating their own business. Now, what, what was your philosophy when you took over for you? Because it sounds to me like you just said the job continued. I carried on doing what I was doing. Yeah. Did you manage to detract yourself from the business as like a hovering above it and seeing how it was going? Did you set a strategy for how you was going to recruit great people, how you was going to increase the figures and turnover what was the strategy and process for you? What was your philosophy? The, the first thing I did was I, I, I did sort of market research, which sounds silly for a builder or a contractor. But I went to all the surveyors who, who were our clients and I, and I just simply asked them, what, annoy, what annoys you with contractors and, and what pleases you with contractors? And I compiled 
through um, a lot of different people, bought a very simple list to give to um, our employees to say, look, this is what you should be doing. This is what makes the clients happy. This is what doesn't make the client happy. So do more of this and do less of that. Um, and then with the staff, I always knew that I had to employ, like I said before, the business people aren't the cleverest blokes in the room, but they employ all the cleverest people. So, I, you know, my, I had an accountant to do the books and then I had a solicitor to do all the letters and then I had contracts managers to do the contracts. And I've got people who were experts in their field and then simply put them all together. So... It was, I don't take much credit for the business. The the employees take the credit for the business. And how did you get people around you with that? Not just the expertise, but I can see it. And and from knowing you, you, you're a very humble guy. And I can imagine working for you and around you that I would always feel like I'm the one achieving and you wouldn't want to feel like it's you that's achieving. You always say it was them, it was them. And you're kind of leading the way and you're the energy and you're the face. However, you give everybody else the credit. How did you manage to empower people through that journey from going from that young kid at at 16 to then becoming an apprentice to then being on site managing to then owning the business at 27 when there must have been people there that was a lot older than you that had kind of worked there longer than you. How did you manage to keep everybody together and, and keep them moving in a direction? What was your kind of thinking there? Um, I, I don't think I really thought about that. I just thought that I need the staff to to go forward. Um, I remember visiting uh, ASOS's um, offices in London, massive offices, um, and they had a full kitchen there. Everyone was wearing shorts and flip-flops, dead relaxed. Um, they had a gym downstairs. Um, they had PTs on standby for any member of staff. They took all the staff to a pub on a Friday. And I walked around and I thought, God, like, this is totally different to our corporate, you know, in an office and you've got a boss that's just piling paperwork on you. And I sort of adopted that approach of it's a lot harder to recruit more staff than it is to keep the existing staff happy. So then I'll just have frank conversations with the staff. What do you like? What you don't like? Um, where, do you think, where do you want to be? And, and every personality is different. And I think every, every we don't just blanket have rules uh, or did it at, at Inco. It was sort of everyone had its individual needs, but the, the hardest bit is keeping it on a level level playing field. I think as yeah. it grew, um, you have to bring in more sort of rules and regulations just to keep it fair, but it's still very heavily weighted to the employees really, for their benefits. So they all, they all had um, more than the average holidays. They all had, you know, if they wanted any points, they could go, um, time off wasn't a problem and, and stuff like that. So it was just those little perks that the... They appreciate really, and people do appreciate the little the, the little perks. Not everyone's after a massive salary. Um, they just appreciate a bit of time and care, and, and even us asking them what they wanted. You know, um, what what are you driven by? Some was driven by a job title. Some was driven by money. Some was driven off you know being a bit relaxed at work and not much pressure. So, just taking an interest in every employee and, and seeing what they want was was uh, worked really well. Worked really well. Amazing. So by helping people feel kind of valued within the business, you felt that that helped them perform because they was happier at work. Definitely, definitely. If someone doesn't feel valued in the business, then they're, just, they're not going to do the best for you, are they? They're not going to do the best. So, so what, was, what was the biggest challenge for them taking on the business at 27? So then, and we'll get to this in a second about kind of selling the business in your early 30s. What was the biggest challenge that you faced through that five-year period? Um, I, can't remember, I can't remember the biggest challenges. Um, it, it, was, it was, to be honest, the biggest challenge was keeping up with growth. Was keeping up with growth because we, we was always well aware that we had to keep the infrastructure in for the company for the next spurt of growth. Now, some businesses struggle with that because the, you have to spend a lot of money that doesn't come back to you straight away. Um, in the construction, it was when health and safety was coming in. We had to spend a lot, a lot of money on health and safety. Um, for, and you don't see any rewards from that. But what you do see is it's like an insurance. So if the health and safety costs, say, £100,000 a year, if you, if you look at it as a way of, if you paid £100,000 a year, you will have no deaths on your site. You'd pay it in an instant. And that's the way that we had to, we had to do it. We, we had to look at things retrospectively and think, right, um, invest a lot of money in it, um, put the infrastructure in, and that, ha- that helps the next um, spurt of growth then. Um, the only problem is when you grow so quick as a company, you get teething problems and then some disgruntled clients and stuff. So that was the hardest bit, was keeping everyone happy when it was, when it was growing so fast. 
Yeah. And was you still kind of in the mix day to day? You're still relentless. You're still going and meeting people. Yeah. I mean, I, I was, you know, I was never one that in the early stages I was doing long hours, but you know, working 70, 80 hours a week was now badge of honor for me. I think if people know Gary V, um, he goes on about hustle, hustle, hustle. I, I don't really like that. Uh, you know, I, I've done it with working very minimum hours. If, if someone asks me, um, how many hours do you work? If it's sat on my, sat on my desk, it's probably not a lot, but how, how many hours the business was on your mind, it was a 24 hours job. But I took a lot yeah. of pride in getting home to my wife and kids than I did at work on there. Like, um, but yeah, it was um, that I always, I was always conscious of um, the impression I gave to the staff. So I was always, I made an effort to, to be first in the office and sometimes and the last one to leave. I was always very conscious of what car I drive because in this industry, you're dealing with clients and pulling up in cars. I've never had flash cars because people take a dislike to that. If you're, if you're working for someone and, and, or if you're employing someone and I've got a flasher car than you, hang on. Um, I understand it because of being in business, but we work for a lot of people who um, would take a dim view on that. So I was, always, I was always conscious of what car I drove, how many hours that I was at the office. I didn't just leave the staff to it. Like, uh, and I think that, and I would always, if, I, if there's any hard task to do, I'd be the first one to do it and show people to do it like so I think that paid dividends uh, and where where do you think this kind of work ethic came from and this understanding of wanting balance with family and and driven to be a successful businessman who was your role models growing up who are the people you look to to learn this from um I think obviously my mom and dad I had, I had a really good upbringing with my mom and dad uh, I wasn't one of these success stories from coming from nothing and 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 sort of setting the world alight uh and I wasn't one that had been handed everything. I was, I was just Mr. Average, really. What I've done, I see, is very, very average. And it's, you know, anyone, anyone can, can do it. Um, I don't know, I, I, I don't, if I dig deep, I don't know where I got the attitude of, I just like being around people and talking and learning off people and talking to people. When we're on holiday, Kelly's always, uh, Mark Kelly, my wife, she's always, don't talk to those, you know, don't talk to them people. You know, we're getting conversations with them and it's sort of like, you know, she knows that we'll get talking to someone, I'll be talking to her for a couple of hours then. Um, <laughs> But I think there's, there's always, you know, people will get you forward. And I think um, if you can connect with people, I think it's a massive, massive life skill above any, uh, above any grades and any hard work really as well. You can, you can be the hardest person, the hardest, hardest worker in the room. Um, but if you're not good with people, then I, I, think you're, I think you're at a loss. And that was one of my questions to you is what kind of do you feel that the greatest attributes of what you possess in terms that's helped you get on life? And I think you've just answered it there. We can all see watching you how how well you, you you communicate. And that first day you rang me, I was coming out of a shop, I think it was 20, 30 minutes just chatting. And I could I could sense your authenticity through your questions mm. because sometimes people ask a question um, but, but want to talk before they've heard the answer. But yeah. you was asking and coming from that humble place of there's somebody that I could maybe ask something and learn from. And I, and I get that with you, that no matter where you go, whoever you're around, you treat everybody the same. So I can imagine that culture you created at work is just from you being you and mm. wanting to help people get to their, where they want to go. And I think it's a really great point that I don't, I'm not so sure many business people ask the people that work with them, what do you want? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because these guys have got life too. You know, it's important that everybody's working towards the life that they want, isn't it? Yeah, no, that's right, that's right. And uh, I think going back with, with having to communicate with people, I could talk to the labour on site and then in the afternoon I'm in London in a board meeting with like Aviva um, and just being able to, and, and, and nothing changes. I speak to them exactly the same as I do uh, with the labour on site. It was funny actually because the, um, we haven't, we've just bought a new house and having quite a lot of work done there and um, the Sparky on site first come. And, and bear in mind, I've been digging a trench outside. With the, the brickies were struggling. So I jumped in the trench with my wellies on and I was digging this, this uh, all our drains are blocked. Uh, so I was digging out and um, I went back in the house and the, the Sparky's first day was there um, and um, he was writing all his notes down and he kept asking me, can you ask the client this, can you ask the client that and can you ask the, can you ask the client this? And in there, so I, I am the client, it's my house. And he, 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 couldn't, he absolutely couldn't believe it. He said, well, but you, you're just normal. I said, yeah, I, I know. And I, and I, bear in mind, I was, I was drenched in, in uh, mud. And uh, I'll tell you that as, as a compliment, really. That, um, I can talk on that level through it's really interesting because I think often kind of the background and upbringing I was from that you never saw anybody that had done well um, in kind of 
in many walks of life, really, especially financially. So when you you thought of people that have done well uh, in in finance in financial terms, you have this perception of them that they wouldn't talk to you because there's levels. Yeah. And actually, yeah. the older I've got, the more people I've met, I'm like these guys are just normal people that have got something yeah. about them. Yeah, yeah. So you you start at 27, you take over the company. Five years later, you sell the business. Now, was there any point through, and, and I don't want to get to the end point yet, is there any point through them five years that you had any self-doubt or you was questioning, have I got what it takes to do this? Or was you seeing evidence within the business that actually I've got what it takes because the figures are growing, everything's great? Was there any doubt in there? Yeah, all, all the time, <laughs> absolutely all the time. Um, and I think you're normal. If you had, and, and the thing with your business owners is you get this um, imposter syndrome, I'll call it, and you, you think, you, you question yourself, should I, be, should I be in the position that I am? Um, and I think, especially in, in any walk of life, really, you, you sort of think, should, have I deserved to be here? Have I done the right things? And, and I think if you're not feeling like that, your goals aren't big enough or you're not testing yourself as much. So up until up until now, really, I still think, am I doing the right thing for this? Am I doing the right? I mean, you know, some people think, oh yeah, you've cracked it, you've cracked life. Well, now we're far from it, like far from it, you know. Um, and I think if you don't get imposter syndrome, then I, I don't think you're, uh, I don't think you're testing yourself too much. So you know, when you feel that imposter syndrome, that's a sign to you that I'm stretching myself and I'm and I'm kind of testing myself. When was the last time you had that imposter syndrome? Because I know you sold a business a year ago. When was the last time you stretched yourself? Um, I, th I think it was just the business generally taking on bigger jobs um, and taking on more staff. It was every time you, because my commitment, it's like if I'm if I if I employ anyone, I'm employing them for life. Um, I, we've never had to sack anyone really. Um, people have left because it's just not for them, and I, and when people have left, I've, I've helped them go. Um, but I think when I show a commitment to the job or a member of staff, it's sort of like that is you. You always, you always have second dates. You have a um, second date. So, um, yeah, hard question. Hard question. That was. Like. Yeah. Well, I, I can I can remember a, an element of that stretching yourself is when you thought I told you that we were doing this next week, and then yesterday I realised <laughs> that no, you're doing it this week. You was like, yeah, no, yeah. I'm I'm prepared for next week. Don't don't yeah. do that on me tomorrow. <laughs> and I could hear it. In, well, I could hear it in your voice through message. Well, I planned for the twentieth, and then when I spoke to you today, you said, "Look, I was all built up for the twentieth, and then you've told me it's today, and that tomorrow." I'm like, "Well, I might as well. What am I going to do in a week? What more preparation can I do in a week?" <laughs> yeah. To be honest, to answer your question, this is the hardest thing done in a long time, in a very long time, because I'm like I said, I'm always the one to to stop at the back. Um, and if any of the lads or any of the staff get credit, I always put them, even if it's something I've done, I always get the, get the people in front to, to, um, to I'm always the, the, the quietest in the room, really. Um, and, and yeah, so to do this is, is, is massive for me, massive for me. So right. it, 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 it's you're coming up, you're coming across like you've done it many times, Chris. It's fantastic. <laughs> at, at what point, when you had that self-doubt, because I do and many people on here will, when you have that self-doubt and that imposter syndrome, how did you overcome that? Um, uh, Renumerated calls um, and um, you, your mind can run away with you. I think just anything that works for you, um, for me, it's going for a run. You know, if, if I thought too much about the business, I'll go for a run or I'll spend time with it, spend time with the kids. Anything, every every person's got their own little, um, and you know, and, and, and sleep and sleep on it. Write, it. write your thoughts down in a book, leave it overnight, and, and, and 10 times, well, nine times out of 10, you wake up and you're in a completely different mindset. And I always thought um, that if, if we, I used to call it black dog, I think uh, Churchill used to get it, I think. And sometimes when you have a business, you, you can just feel down for the day and you don't know why, you don't know what, what's happening. Everything's going great. You just feel a bit down. And I just say, oh, that's black dog. That's black dog. And uh, Winston Churchill used to get it. Um, and then you wake up in a completely different frame of mind. So I began to learn that it was temporary. It was a temporary thing of, oh, yeah. Thing. And I also go back to what is the worst thing that can happen? So if, and I used to think of what is the very worst thing that could happen? And when you think of that, it's not that bad. Because the vet, yeah, 
you might lose a job. I, you know, I might lose the business. But is that the, really the worst thing that could happen? Not really, no. There's a lot worse people out there. And I think if everyone put their problems in a pile, I think you, you, you take your arm back out every day. And I think I used to just do that. What is, what is the absolute worst case scenario? What would happen now? And a lot of the time, it's not, it's not that bad. Fantastic. I love it. So you overcame self-doubt by kind of exercising, releasing energy, writing your thoughts down, actually thinking what is the worst thing that can happen. And actually really, um, as they say, fear is false evidence appearing real a lot of the time. So the stuff that was bothering you actually wasn't real. And then you overcame it and just kept moving forward. So you get to 2020 and obviously you sell the business. Um, what was the reason? Because you're such a young man. I mean, you're only 34 now. So you sold the business at 33 for um, 4.5 million pounds. And this is an interesting story where I'd like you to share with the group about potentially what you could have got for it and the reasons why you sold it for the amount that you did to the people that you did. But first of all, Chris, uh, such a young man in his early 30s, what point did you start thinking, actually, I want to sell my business? What was the reason behind that? It was, it was mainly because um, I, I was friends with a lot of business, other business owners uh, that was a lot older than me. And I saw similarities in everyone. And I just thought, they're all doing the same thing. Um, they're all, you know, 50s, 50s or 60s. And they're all, they're all, they've all become a slave to their own business. Not in a derogatory way at all, but that generation, it was like, I've got to work hard, I've got to work hard, I've got to work hard, and that's the right thing to do. Um, and I sort of questioned that. And I thought, well, what, what is important? What is important? And, and when you, when we look back at what's the worst thing that happened with the business, if the business failed, you know, the business failed, but when you've got the people around you and like in lockdown now, um, that's what I wanted to do more of, is just spend more time at home. And I wasn't embarrassed to tell people that. And my last LinkedIn post to say that I'd sold the business, and the reason was, I simply just want to spend more time at home. And, and that was it. That was the goal. Amazing. So you're in your early 30s. You start to speak to Kelly, your wife and your children about exiting the business so you can then have more time with your family. Um, and, and bearing in mind, you took the company from, what was it? Two, was it 4 million turnover to 14 million turnover by the yeah. time? So five years, you grew at 2 million pounds a year, really. And so you added 10 million pounds onto the turnover. So you're doing really well. And you can actually take a nice kind of, lump of money every year out of the business too yet you've made a decision at that point to spend more time with your family and sell your company for 4.5 million when probably knowing that actually if I do another three or four or five years it could be worth 15 20 million um, in fact when we spoke you said that actually potentially with the profits that the way that they were you could have probably got anywhere from six to eight million pounds so tell us about why you decided to sell it the way that you did and who you sold it to what was your thinking um, I saw another survey, and it was the average salary to sort of for, for happiness in the UK is probably about household about seventy thousand pound a year. So if you've got a, a household income of about fifty to seventy thousand pound a year, um, you know you can have the car of your choice, you can live where you want, you can afford to eat out, you can go on a holiday. Anything above that um, doesn't come back to you. You can buy a more expensive watch, you can buy a faster car. It, it, it doesn't come back to you. So there's, there's very little difference between someone earning that money, and even less, even less than someone earning two, three, four million pounds a year. Because I know a lot of wealthy people who are, who are, who are miserable. Um, so uh, there's actually a book about it. It's called Enough. So I knew what I had to, what was enough for me, for, for our family, um, and that's what I work. That's what I work towards. And that was, um, and again, going back to what was the worst that could happen, if. The business I didn't go through. I mean, I'm still waiting for a lot of the money. But the worst case happened if I don't get the money, I'll just go back to work in a few years. You know, I've had a few. And what, what have I done? I've had a few years at home with Kelly and the kids when the kids are growing up. And uh, you know, if I have to go back to work before forty, so be it. You know, that's the worst. <laughs> so. so you bought it off your mentor, and then you sold the business to two people that you mentored. Is that right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That that was exactly right. Um, it was a nice, friendly deal again. It was done a lot on, on trust as well. Um, so I'm trusting them with this business to do well because I know they will. Um, and yeah, it wasn't a business deal as in, oh, I'm going to hold out and get as much as, a, much as I possibly can. Um, it was, what is the bare minimum I could sell the business so then we're happy as a family and they can succeed uh, without too much stress as well. So then they become 
they might do the same in five or six years' time, which would be great. For so, so just get this right. So you, you've got the business and you sell it to them. And in your mind, you're thinking, what can I sell it to them for that's enough for me to live off, but also is not going to put enough pressure on them that they're not going to enjoy owning the business and take it to the next level. So you wasn't just thinking about yourself. You were still thinking about these guys, even though you're at that point where you could be saying, I want an extra million quid. You're like, that'll put too much pressure on them. So I'm happy with that. Are you guys? And that's just a phenomenal thing mm -hmm. because often you hear about people when they're selling something, they're trying to push it up where you was trying to find something that worked for your family and worked for Sam and Dave that bought it off you. And that's just an incredible thing. And, and I actually got the opportunity to speak to Sam, who again, I think he was 27 when he bought the company off you, wasn't he? So I got to speak to Sam and he said to me, you're, you, Chris, he said, Chris, who had the company, this was before I met you, he said, Chris is a real inspiration to me. And I said, who's Chris? He said, Chris is the guy that owned it, bought it off his mentor, then sold it to me. And I said, how come he's such an inspiration? And he repeated what you've just said. He said he made it so, he said, I, I've just bought a house, Luke, and I would have never, ever been able to buy the house of which I've just bought if Chris hadn't given me this opportunity to buy his company. So he, not one part of him was thinking, he's got a bit extra from me. He's thinking, you've given me an opportunity by me buying this from you. And I thought that was a beautiful thing to hear somebody, same age as you when you took it on, to now get that opportunity to do it for him and his young family too. Yeah, but well, I think... Um... Like I said, we, we had, we, me and Kelly both spoke to our financial advisors and, and we, the, the, the premise of the meeting was, what is the minimum we can sell this business to, to survive for the rest of our lives? And we came up with a figure. Um, and I even give Sam and Dave, I, I said, look, this is how much I want. It's based on this. Here's all the company accounts. Go and get, go and get your own advice uh, and I'll try and convince you not to buy the business. Um, went to get their own advice and Sam, I know, uh, I know one of them spoke with the, with the dad and... Uh, a business accountant and bear in mind these two have never ever met me um, and they both come back and said he snap, snap his hand off snap his hand. we can see how he's built the business and what he's kept in the business snap his hand off and, and that was it for them um, and, and he's brilliant you know? I'm, I'm really I'm really happy about that that we, we, we can do that for him so. it's a, you think though as well that the business was making what two million pounds a year profit so in two years really they've got a potential to get the, the money back of what they bought it for well, yeah, that, that, that was it. And that was even with me thinking, shall I stay on for a few more years? But that wasn't giving, that wasn't coming, you know, we could, I could have stayed on and earned loads and loads of money, but I, I was happy, I had enough. Um, yeah, they can have that opportunity now. Uh, and, I'm not, and I'm not bitter about it at all. I'm, I'm, excited, I'm really excited for them. It's, a, it's an amazing thing. I really believe what you give to the world comes back and what your mentor did for you, you've passed that forward. You've passed that on to them boys, which hopefully they'll take that on to what they do next yeah. in their future. So a couple of questions, Chris. So now you've sold the company and you go from working and, and now spending more time with your family and we've had all of this lockdown. And I know you've got a real keen interest in helping other people. Just share with us how you want to move into the next chapter of your life and what do you think it will be doing? I want to go into financial coaching uh, because one thing I was quite good at, um, just naturally, I think, was looking after my finances. Um, and when I became involved in the business, you know, you start accumulating a network of accountants and financial advisors and, and insurance brokers, and you start speaking to all these professionals. Um, but when I spent a lot of time on the road, going up and down to London, I just used to listen to podcasts and free, free content, really. And I really took off on the investing side of it. Um, now, a lot of the wealth has been built through Inco, but... It, it's sustainable through my investment side, uh, which I've, I've, taught, I've taught myself with that. Um, and I'm amazed that this information isn't freely available to just to just jail blogs on the street and just normal people um, with average average jobs, below average jobs, who can invest uh, and create a better future for themselves. Um, the financial industry at the minute is set up just for people who have got tens or you know hundreds of thousands of pounds just to give to them. Give them a fan, you know, invite them to some fancy offices in London or Birmingham and, and think they're getting a great return. Whereas really it's the people on the street that need the financial advice and the little, the little free advice of, um, you know, put your money there or have a look at this. And it makes massive difference, massive difference. So that's, that's the next thing I'm going to go into financial coaching. Amazing. And what's something that when you said there, Chris, that things that I thought people would know, but they don't know, kind of what, what was the biggest kind of, 
people don't know this stuff about finances. What was it? I think it was, it was, it was just basic, well, I'll say basic stuff, but it's like um, savings accounts and having to, um, even just um, getting your money in one pot and then ascertaining some to bills, having a bill account and um, make sure all your bills are paid first, automating your payments, so making use of your ISAs and your pensions. And I think we spoke earlier about, um, I used to handle pensions when I was young and you speak to a, um, a younger person today and, and they relate a pension to a pensioner um, and they just shut off. They're just not interested, but it's, it's, the, it's the best thing the UK government has, has given people with the tax-free breaks and they can really, really make a really nice lifestyle for them later in life if they're just aware of these things, but it's just not, the information isn't passed down and it should be in schools. It should be in schools, but it's not. And what, what would your advice be to, because often I speak to people and um, often people say, well, I don't earn enough money to be able to save anything or invest anything. Where would you suggest, I know you're not giving advice from a financial point of view, uh, financial <laughs> advice. You're talking as a person that's kind of done really well with his finances and looked after them. What advice would you give to people that say, I just don't earn enough to be able to invest? I, I would say, just look, it's, all, it's, it's very easy now because you've got online banking and online apps. And you can literally get a list of your direct debits. First thing, get a list of your direct debits online um, and go through every single one and just say, do I really need this? Do I need this one? And we was having like, you know, £5.99 from an insurance of a washing machine that we paid 10 years ago. And it's just those little bits um, that really add up. Um, you know, you, you don't have to... And, Write it all, get it all down on one sheet. I've still got my bills on a, on a, on a spreadsheet. It's, it's, people think, oh, it's, you know, it's, it's sad, it's whatnot. But if you don't know what your outgoings are, how, how do you know, you know, what you can save? And I think people, nine times out of ten, uh, ten, people are always surprised of how much money they have left spare. Uh, yeah. And I think as soon as you get it on the paper, it makes it real. And they ask, God, I've, I've got that much spare. And then they realise that... They've been spending £15 a day at Costa Coffee or something. And I'm not saying don't have the Costa Coffee, have the Costa Coffee, but just have one every other day. And, and there's all, a lot of time, there's always money there that they, they, they can find. Oh, and what, um, what would you recommend for anybody that just kind of wants to start saving a pound a day or, you know, five pounds a week? Is there any apps that you recommend or anything out there that you'd say we should be looking at? The, the good one at the minute is, is Moneybox. Um, but that's the investing side, but that's just uh, rounds up your change. Um, so that's really helpful. If people think they can't save, um, especially if they're using contactless payments, they can get onto Moneybox and it just rounds up. You know, if you buy something for 70 pence, it'll round up to a pound. And I think, or if you don't want to go down that route, just save something, save something that you know you're not going to touch and save it at the start of the month. Don't, don't, what people tend to do is just, they have the, they have the paycheck and then say, well, I'm going to, whatever's left at the end of the month, I'm going to put in a savings account. And nine times out of 10, there's nothing at the end of the month. Um, or even if there is, what they do is they'll either commit and say, they'll, they'll go from saving nothing to 300 pound a month, say. And then the next month, they'll have to dip into that 300 pound. But once they've dipped into it, it clears them out and they keep dipping into it. The, the, the trick is to, put something away, no matter it, it might be £10 a month, just put that away and don't dip into it. And over six months, 12 months, you'll see that and you'll take a lot of self-pride by saying, well, I haven't touched that. I, I can do it. And that, that's all it starts and then just slowly increase it from there. So I think other than just saving the money, it's the discipline, isn't it? That you're setting yourself a goal and you stick into it and then you get that reward of saying, actually, I've now got, in 12 months, I've got £1,000 there and I've done that through rounding up my money and, and saving a tenner. It's the achievement. I think once you start to feel like you get that sense of reward and that energy that you want to do a little bit more and a little bit more. Definitely. And I think even when people have bad debt, I mean, I have very, some very close friends and family who've got like, uh, who had a lot of bad debt. And um, I, I had a good chat with them. And, I, and people always say, I'll pay, back, pay bad debt off. We can't save any money because we've got so much debt. I said, okay, well, you still need to save some money because that money's for you. So you can work all your life paying off paying off this debt, but you've still got no money for you yourself. So even if you pay a thousand pound off uh, for bad debt, just keep ten pound for yourself. So twelve months, you do get a lot of satisfaction. Sorry, Chris, you just cut off there. I don't know if you nipped to the toilet or you just went a bit blank. And no, no. 
No, I've got the, the internet connection is unstable. It's okay. That's fine. You, you're back now, mate. That's good. So a couple right. of questions just before I open it up to the rest of the group that may want to ask anything. And, um, and by the way, guys, for anybody that's more interested in the, in the financial aspect, I'm not going to go too deep in it to it tonight because I know some people may have very little interest. So I want to keep it generic, but I also am going to ask Chris at some point to do a more intimate session of people that really want to go into kind of their finances, investing and saving, because I've spoke to Chris now a number of times and I get off the phone and I'm so blown away by what I don't know. And it's like, how do I know? I'm 41. How do I not know that? But nobody's taught you that about money and about taking care of your children and that kind of stuff. You, you just don't think of it until sometimes it maybe get to the later chapters of your life. So we will put something on guys um, for everybody. Just moving on, Chris. So if I said to you now, kind of fast forward your life another 40 years, what advice would the, um, or, or 50 years nearly for you, what advice would your older self in the later chapters give to the Chris today? Spend more time with your family. I think definitely Amazing. spend above everything, above um, money, investing, business. I think it, it all comes back down to your family, definitely. Definitely. I love the way that you've not been drawn into the money thing in terms of now I'm doing well, I'm earning a lot of money and I'm a business doing well, but now I'm obsessed with it and that's taken over. You, you've always seemed to ask yourself the question of why am I doing what I'm doing? Yeah, or, or as I, I spoke to someone before and they just kept asking why. Well, what? And, you know, you can have some great conversations with the children and because they're always asking why and why. And that makes you realise that you, you, you'll do something because... You, you make an excuse to do it. I'm, I'm working so hard because I have to for the family when really the family just want your time. They don't want you working eight hours a week. So I think or just questioning why you're doing what you're doing is, is makes you have a real good look, look at it. And last question, Chris, before I pass it out to the group. If I spoke to your children, Everly and uh, Leo, and you wasn't there, and I asked them to describe their dad to the group, what would you like them to say? Not what would they say, what would you like them to say? I'd like them to say that they are just proud of what I do, uh, and Kelly as well. Uh, I, yeah, just that they're proud, and that's my dad. I'd, I'd like them to say that. Amazing. That's a to be honest, we, we, I never really missed the school in this year. Um, but I missed very little, and they're still not embarrassed for me to pick them up from school, so that, that's, that's, um, that's a bonus. <laughs> 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 mm. not, in the, not in the Audi TT, Chris. Thank you so much for listening and being part of the From Nowhere to Somewhere podcast. I'd be really honoured, grateful and super appreciate any shares and subscribes possible. Please give this to any family, friends and loved ones anywhere in the world that you feel could take value from what you've just heard too. Thank you so much for your support. I look forward to speaking to you real soon on the next episode. From me to you, have a wonderful day. Take care. All my love, energy, inspiration, Luke Staten.